Hello, you're listening to the Poshcore Podcast with Alan and Scora. We just want to thank everybody for listening to episode one and subscribing to the podcast on iTunes. It's been a really great um, experience for us and great response from all of you. So thank you guys for listening to episode one. Thank you to all our 39 subscribers. (laughs) (laughs) Woohoo! So today's episode is about perception. Um, I remember back when I was serving in South Africa and I would be meeting with other volunteers, we always got like... Like, sort of like just the very dregs of the news, you know? So, like, the only thing I ever heard about was the cruise ship that crashed. And also something, you know, a little bit about politics, like Osama bin Laden was, was right. killed. And then also I heard about these bath salt zombies in Florida. What? And I heard that what we thought was, like, there are all these people in South Florida who've eaten bath salts and become zombies. And South Florida is just plagued by the, the bath salt zombie apocalypse. I literally never heard that story exactly i mean (laughs) you just hear these little snippets of like what's going on and it it informs this whole and it can sort of like you can sort of understand why people would have this idea about americans that we're all the sopranos or we're right you know we're all we're all crazy eating bath salts we all have a million guns you know we all have so you can you can sort of see how people's perceptions can be shaped in that way wow i don't think i've even ever used bath salts (laughs) (laughs) Today's episode of the Posh Corps podcast is Perception. Our first segment is about a Peace Corps volunteer in Haiti. Revolutions, assassinations, and zombies. That's coming up next. Early in 2013, I got in my car and traveled six hours to Cheyenne, Wyoming. I had just returned from my Peace Corps service in South Africa. I had lived in Cheyenne before Peace Corps. It was not my favorite place ever, and there was really only one person I was interested in seeing, my French teacher, Paula. Um, how did you, how did you like Haiti? What was, what was that like? Um, I loved Haiti. Um, I didn't, first I, you know, I I think I read about Haiti in the Graham Greene book, The the Comedians, in high school, and it was just this kind of dark memory. It was like something dark, you know? And I also think I also thought, you know, the Creole, you know, Associating that with Edgar Allan Poe, and you know, I had kind of these kind of, I had a lot of literary kind of references that I kind of were mulling around in the back of my mind. But I was also very nervous about bugs and about disease and stuff. But it was, you know, I just, you know, there were bugs and there was there were snakes and scorpions and that kind of stuff. But that just wasn't the major part of it. It was a really vibrant people, and you know, I enjoyed that. I had enrolled in Paula's French language class at the local college. I was desperate to get out of Cheyenne, to go out into the world somewhere, somehow, and I thought learning another language might help me get a job in another country. Paula's classes were always full of exotic foods, French lessons, and stories of her time in Peace Corps Haiti. Her stories were so vivid that they inspired my own dreams. I would have dreams of serving as a volunteer in Haiti before I even applied for Peace Corps. The stories were also confusing. Paula didn't directly endorse her service nor did she describe the experience in the way most travelers do. She didn't encourage or dissuade, but somehow she put me on the path to my own Peace Corps service. So after Peace Corps, I visited Paula and asked her to revisit her stories. Not one to beat around the bush, I got right to the most bizarre question. So I was wondering if you could, this is just sort of a funny question, I guess. Are zombies real? They are. Can you can you tell me a bit about them? Yeah, there's... Um... 
Okay, there is a book written by a Harvard professor who actually did a study and found out that there was, you know, well, Haitian is very, Haitian society is very superstitious, and I saw that all the time. But the story, which was, which has actually been proven true, is they would sprinkle this powder in the fields of somebody who, who was already afraid of them. So the person that has been, has suggested this for whatever means, walking on it through bare feet and stuff, appears to be dead and then the families are already superstitious about you know everything and you don't keep dead bodies around and invite spirits and so you bury them quickly and then the, apparently these people that put this powder out will go and exhume them and take them and then make them slaves and the people have claimed to see their loved ones in cities walking around the streets with these kind of deadpan eyes because they've been so highly drugged. The book she's talking about is The Serpent and the Rainbow by ethnobotanist Wade Davis. Davis traveled to Haiti to discover the biological origins of the Haitian zombie myth. He studied practices of the Haitian animist spirituality, what Americans call voodoo. Davis proposed that powerful neurotoxins can be derived from native plants and animals in Haiti. These toxins can produce the appearance of death in a person who is exposed to them. The individual thus exposed appears to be dead and is buried only to be exhumed later by the voodoo practitioner who poisoned them. The individual is kept drugged and suggestible, and becomes the slave of the voodoo practitioner. The findings regarding neurotoxins are not universally accepted by the scientific community, but what does seem likely is that the most important component in producing a zombie slave is belief. The enslaved individual must believe themselves to be powerless against voodoo magic. The zombie is enslaved by their own belief. So. I think that you know there really are cases that this has happened. There's also a lot of talk about this happening, so there's a lot of fear that it will happen. And see, voodoo in an African culture is is just an animistic. It's not dark and ugly. And the, and there were people in Haiti that supposedly practiced white magic, which was good. And the mambos were the good, the good witches. You know, then the then the hugons were the bad witches. And so you had you know you had dark and you had light and yet but you also had lots of people. Um, threatening to do bad things that maybe didn't even know how to do it, but people were always afraid that the pot the dark could get them. Do you feel like you can understand how it became, how the, the, the Haitian version of, of voodoo could become the way it was there based on your experience of the culture? Could you like yeah, see Yeah, you know, um, if you know anything about Haiti's history, they were the first black republic to become independent, and they did it by intimidating the French because they use voodoo as a threatening thing. And I think that maybe just the fact that voodoo was used as a threatening thing and chased out the French, I mean, they, they may have really actually poisoned them, you know, or they may have just made them thought they would think that they were poisoned, but they they got the living daylights out of Haiti because they were afraid of voodoo. And so it must have either been, you know, imagine if you were brought over and you were enslaved and you were, because that was the richest, Haiti was the richest colony in the world. I mean, they, it got its money from slave trade. So imagine if you were brought from your existence, which was okay, to a place where you were mistreated and undervalued and not allowed to have the, you know, the fruits of your labor. And of course, maybe a, a good thing could be used in a bad way, and maybe because it could be used to be um, manipulative, maybe that's where Haitians started to learn to manipulate, you know, each other because they're they're. They're, they haven't had a good president since the start. Everyone's always been abusive. And if you have that kind of thing continuing, perpetuating, you know, maybe that's just part of 
the sickness of slavery that turned Haiti into becoming a place where, you know, even though it's the people are resilient and vibrant and interesting and, and have interesting sense of humor and, and creativity that's hidden, um, it also is a place of oppression. And because they, they were oppressed, so they, therefore they oppress. Haitians achieved their independence from the French in 1804. In the century following the slave revolt, Haiti was ruled by a series of emperors. Long periods of instability led to failure of the Haitian state. In 1915, Haiti was occupied and controlled by an external power, the United States Navy, and a series of presidential elections followed. The most notable president was elected in 1957, François Duvalier, more popularly known as Papa Doc. Papa Doc controlled Haiti with fear. He altered the constitution to make himself president for life. He revived the traditions of voodoo and advertised himself as a powerful voodoo priest. But Papadoc's worldly powers were derived in part from his secret police force, the Tantan Makut, which repressed political opposition. Duvalier died in 1971 and was replaced by his 19-year-old son, Jean-Claude Duvalier, or Baby Doc. Baby Doc's reign can best be described as a kleptocracy, though he was interested in the appearance of reform. As part of this agenda of appearances, the U.S. Peace Corps was invited to work in Haiti in 1982. I'm not sure how bright Jean-Claude Duvalier is. You know, there's some, some speculation about it. There's a quote, he's, you know, capable of more than you think. <laughs> so I don't know whose decision it was, but, you know, we did come in, and I was in the seventh group of volunteers that came in. I think each, you know, it was like every seven or eight months they brought. So we were really new. We'd only been in the country for a couple, couple years. I was the first, we were the first married couple in Haiti. And, there, and then I got pregnant while I was there and they didn't know what to do, how to handle it, because they'd never had any policies for that. So, um, But we all had, there was a city planner and there was an architect and there were several doctors and nurses. and So we were a pretty professional group because they didn't want to have younger, possibly, you know, volatile kinds of volunteers that could cause problems. Um, what do you think was the most difficult thing about, about serving in Haiti? Well, one of the things that was hard for me, because I'm a teacher, is that <clears throat> Haiti likes to strike a lot. Um, the uh, education system would always shut down. So I was teaching at a university, and then whenever there was a, a strike, or any, any kind of political unrest, schools closed. So I got another job teaching French and um, English in a girls' school. Then, that, then there was, that was closed whenever there was a strike. And then I was teaching market women how to read. And then they didn't feel comfortable coming to the church at night to work with me and learn how to read because they were going to school and that would be like maybe they get in trouble because the country was striking and that's what they do is they close the schools all the time. So that was really hard because the only thing I did was really into education and everybody knew it. I mean everybody that was involved in what I was doing knew they were being taught something and if there was a strike they couldn't go to school. So. Haitians continued to struggle with widespread poverty and disease. When contrasted with Baby Doc's highly publicized, lavish lifestyle, the events of 1986 are not surprising. Um, so you were um, you were there during the the revolution. What was how did that happen? Like it was funny because um, I think you know after the I think it was it was like about a week before the the, the, the um, revolt happened on February 7th. So it was like January 31st, I think. I remember coming back from something and somebody said, there was a riot today. It's like a riot, you know, in this town. Within a week, Baby Doc had been airlifted to France and it was over. You know, it was like 
kind of like, what? You know? But during that week when, when he was kicked out, when the, the rumors came true, I mean, we were in a city, but not a major city. It was like we were far from the capital. And we would have been just fine, probably wouldn't have even known if we were in the countryside. We might not even, even have known much about what was going on. But they came in a Peace Corps vehicle with the Peace Corps on the side, with the American flag on the side, and they took us in the night to the capital so we could be safe if we had to be um, air evacuated. You said you you were staying with the ambassador, or no? We were staying with uh, well, there were a lot of the embassy people. I, I was staying with um, Dr. Paul Paul Alexander, who was a retired doctor from Minneapolis, who was working with the Ministry of Health, just trying to reorganize it and make it more efficient. And so Dr. Alexander had found out that there were these pharmacies that were supposed to be supplying, you know, drugs to the countryside, and they were taking the money and they were pocketing it, and they weren't using it all for the drugs or they were giving them substandard things. It just wasn't being done right. So he just made sure that they didn't get the contract. Before he left, he just made sure you know, that somehow the policies changed so they wouldn't get the contract again. And they were mad. And so they had kind of been studying him. You know, we knew where he lived. And, and um, they, they came in the house, and Dr. No I mean, Dr. Dr. Alexander and his wife were sleeping. Went up the stairs shown a flashlight, he opened his eyes, they shot him in his bed right next to his wife. And, and, you know, and then left. So they, because they just were, it was total, total revenge for that contract thing. What follows is from a report in the Orlando Sentinel. Port-au-Prince, Haiti. American killed. Paul Alexander and his wife heard a noise in their kitchen Thursday. He went to investigate. When the intruders spotted Alexander, they shot and killed him. His wife was not hurt. We don't see this as an anti-American thing or a terrorist thing, said Jeffrey Light of the U.S. Information Service in Haiti. The motive is not clear. Police haven't caught anyone or charged anyone. Alexander, 59, was an advisor to the Haitian Health Ministry, working on a contract administered by the U.S. Agency for International Development. But that, after that happened, um, I, I, had, I had lost two babies in Haiti and that was hard enough. And so when I got pregnant, I decided I'm not going to stay in this place. It doesn't, it doesn't seem to be safe anymore. There were other stories of other things that were starting to happen. What really happened with Dr. Alexander is his, he had, um, I think, two or three sons, or son, two sons and a daughter or something. And, but the, the kids were trying to get senators and stuff back in the States to put pressure on the government, diplomatic part of the government to do something, at least investigate and try to find who did it. And they weren't cooperating because they didn't want to, because they didn't want to have, you know, rock the boat. Because it was, Haiti was just got rid of the dictator and they were responsible for that. They didn't want to do anything more that was going to look like U.S. is invading. You know, they didn't want to do that. They wanted Haiti to be able to stand on its own. So, so I think that that made us realize that we didn't have any protection. So if something happened to us, it was going to be the same story. Did Peace Corps, what was their response to the... They pulled us out. I mean, they pulled out, Peace Corps pulled out. I left before they did, but I think then about within two months they decided to make the decision to pull the program. Paula returned to the United States. She worked as a French teacher for many years, always visiting Haiti on and off. Following the Haiti earthquake of 2010, Paula started returning to Haiti for long periods to serve as a Creole translator for aid workers. She recently founded an orphanage and school to teach children orphaned by the earthquake. Um, I know you. You need to go, um, but if you were, um, if there's one thing you wish people knew about Peace Corps, or what would would there be something? Um, maybe that you know it's it's worth it, but sometimes the bureaucracy makes it feel like, well, is this all worth it? You know, you have to go through a lot. 
but it's worth it. It's worth doing if you can just get past the waste and the frustration and the misinformation and the, you know, they sending you the wrong stuff or calling you after 10 years and telling you that they made an accounting error, so can you pitch in to help fix it? <laughs> I mean, that's not, you know, very, I think there's just too many, it's just too big of a machine. It doesn't work fast. Maybe um, if sometimes the countries had a little more autonomy and, and it was a little bit less manipulated by Washington. I mean, that's how it was when we were in. It may, I, don't know if it, I only imagine it's still that way. You know, it, it's like, you know, it's like if giving schools autonomy, they can do a really good job. Just give them the resources, give them the philosophy, give them what they need, and, you know, give them protection if they need that too. But give them some freedom to do how they need to instead of making everything have to fit in a certain pattern. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Paula. This has been really With that, Paula was off to another meeting. I stepped outside. The sky was orange. The snow was falling. The streets were silent, muffled by the huge snowflakes. I got in my car and left Cheyenne before the snow could trap me there. All those years ago, I was captivated by Paula's stories, but I had to do Peace Corps myself to truly understand. American culture likes narrow definitions. In America, things are amazing or awesome or terrible. Two years embedded deeply into a foreign culture, the trials, the exhaustion, the moments of absolute joy, these are the things that make up the Peace Corps experience, an experience which defies narrow definition. It is deep and rich and complex. Despite all the years that had passed, despite everything that had happened during her service, Haiti was still calling Paula back, just like South Africa was calling me back. So, Alan, what was your initial perception of Peace Corps? What was your initial idea about Peace Corps before you joined um, and leading up to your application process? Well, um, originally I thought I was going to uh, be serving in West Africa, um, but then when I was assigned South Africa, I imagined myself in a Khoisan village um, living the lifestyle of a hunter-gatherer, which is not what happened at all. <laughs> yeah. Um, for me... I wanted to go to Africa. Ever since I was a little kid, I was like, I want to go to Africa. I'm obsessed with cheetahs and lions. And I just wanted to, I mean, when I was younger, I wanted to be, you know, one of those researchers that goes out and tags lions and then tracks them their whole life. And I thought, oh, wow, Peace Corps would be a cool way to, maybe I could do that in Peace Corps and, and then like live with villagers and, and just have this like very idealistic experience. But my perception of Africa, which is, I think many people admit is South Africa. And, and my assignment turned out to be Morocco, super far away, like total opposite corner of the continent. But yeah, my initial perception was, I'm going to run around with villagers and lions. We, yeah, we, we both had this like almost idealized idea. Like I thought I would be in this like untouched culture. Yeah. Um, and you thought you would be in your vision of South Africa. Right. Just because looking at like the, the, the imagery that Peace Corps puts out there too, it's like, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, this is going to be like the best thing ever. And right. it, 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 it was the best thing. I think one of the best things I've ever done in my life, but it was not anywhere near where yeah. I expected it to be. But yeah. Has your reaction or your, your ideas about Africa, you know, particularly South Africa, um, have, they, have they changed? Oh, definitely. Yeah, like 100-fold. I mean, 
Yeah, I think everybody goes through a point in their service when they when they're just they're hating it, you know, they're hating service and they're hating the place they live. And you know, if you're the kind of person who's able to get through that and get to the point where you you sort of begin to embrace the culture and begin to accept it, and you know, allow it to change you, um, yeah, it's still a great experience. But yeah, your your perception of the place is going to change completely. Yeah, which I think is like the most beautiful thing about. Um, like the Peace Corps experience is that they know you don't speak well Mm. and they sometimes they can't even understand you and you can't understand them. But I think the thing that I loved about my experience, which I don't think happens here is that they accept you a lot quicker because like, you know, we go there and we learn, we learn, try to learn their language and, and we try and assimilate and integrate and talk. And my fear is that like, and I think I'm coming, you know, as I get older, realizing this more and more is that when people come to America and try and learn our language, we do not accept them as quickly. No. If any, you know, people laugh at them mm-hmm. and we lose patience really, really, really quickly. And um, I think that's kind of the reverse culture shock thing that makes me really sad about Peace Corps experience also is that I'm so nostalgic about just like the, the people more so than living in like Morocco is a beautiful country, but I, what I remember most is hanging out with and being really uncomfortable sometimes because I couldn't say very much, but um, just hanging out with like my host mom, my host sisters, my host brothers. So, like, what was what was your initial reaction when you heard that you were you were assigned to Morocco? Like, oh shit! First of all, like, oh shit! I got into Peace Corps, and secondly, like. This is this is really happening. Like, oh my god! Um, and then looking, you know, they give you that white little pamphlet thing in this blue like folder with felt Velcro that says, and they ha- highlight it like, congratulations, highlighted country. <laughs> um, and I'm like, oh Morocco, that's not South Africa, that's not Kenya, that's not Tanzania. Where that's not where the animals are, mm-hmm. and there are no lions in Morocco anymore because I had a poster of endangered species or <laughs> extinct species in Morocco, and I was like, oh man, everything's dead. It's all like the really really cool big cats are gone. Yeah, um, yeah, and I just remember being scared, like being scared and making a pros cons list because mm-hmm. I tend to need to write things down for it to be real to me. Um, and I remember all the pros were like world experience, getting to know, like everything that Peace Corps is supposed to do, like world experience, getting to know another culture, um, living abroad, you know, things like that, making, making new friends, both in country and then new American friends. Um, and then all my fears, all the, all the cons were just all fears, like fears of, or fear of, um, you know, getting sick fear of dying, you know, all these like intense fears, um, fears of failing, fears of not knowing what I was doing. And then also fear of everyone that I was going to be leaving behind, moving on without me and, and forgetting about me almost to a certain degree. Um, what about you? Well, one thing that I I thought was really interesting about what you said was like, you were afraid of failure. Um, and I think that's a, a big American thing. Like failure is bad. You know, and since doing Peace Corps, I'm like, well, I'm going to fail all the time, you know, so I better get used to it. And in fact, I think failure is is healthy because it helps you 
when you do succeed, it really helps you succeed in the right way, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't become everything to you. It's just another success or another failure, and you move on. Yeah, this yeah, this kind of loops a little bit back to our first episode, but there's kind of this, like, it's, it's like a joke, but not really a joke between a couple of my Peace Corps friends and I, but we're always, like, trying to be adults, but it's just this joke, like, oh, you know, just trying to be an adult. Like, you know, we texting each other, hey, how you doing, or email, or Gchat, or whatever, phone call. Oh, just trying to be an adult. It's like, oh my God, aren't we all? We're just trying. Yeah, um, yeah. Which is something that I just, we just don't admit. We don't let ourselves be okay with trying. It's yeah. Like it, trying doesn't equal success. I mean, that sort of like hints at something we've been sort of talking about this whole episode is that one of the biggest things about perception is like, what do you believe your, what do you believe about yourself and how does that affect what you are able to accomplish? Have you right. found that like, you know, you believe in yourself more, you you believe that there are things you can accomplish that you wouldn't have thought you could have if you hadn't done Peace Corps? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think me for my whole music stuff, I, you know, in high school, I auditioned for the senior year talent show with one of my friends and we didn't make it. And I was like super crushed because I was like, wait a second, I thought we, kill- we kicked ass. And we did. And it clearly it still affects me because I'm like 10 years later, I'm like, what the hell? Um, and then in college, kind of breaking out a little bit and doing a little bit more performance. Um, and then in Peace Corps, just like taking off. And I don't know if that's because it was, I, mean, I was talking with my coworker about this the other day, but like culturally acceptable for me to be spending so much time on doing this music part. Mm. And I think that's why I was able to write so much. And now it's more difficult for me to write because it's not necessarily culturally acceptable to be an artist or a creative person, but yet we like revere creative people. Yeah. You know, we're like Thomas Kincaid was brilliant, John yeah. Muir was brilliant, you know, like Elton John's brilliant. But if they weren't successful yeah. by monetary standards, we'd be like, what a hippie, wasting yeah. your time. Yeah. Like, what are you doing with your life? What's your backup plan? All this crap. So I was wondering if you would tell me a little bit about uh, Stranger. Yeah, that's, that's a song that I recorded just did a demo of it like last summer but I think the first line of that song like I was not a stranger until I came home and I remember like just singing that and being like oh that's good and then like writing that down and it just kind of like it's evolved into this idea of um just feeling really weird when I got back and trying to express myself but not overly express because again at the close of service conference they tell you no one really cares and trying to grapple with but but like I need someone else. I need someone to care about this. Yeah. Aside from my mom and dad, like and my brother. Like I I and my other brother. I need someone to really care about this. Mm-hmm. I need one of my friends to genuinely care. And realizing that maybe they really didn't or they tried and they couldn't. Mm-hmm. Um and so that's really what that that song is about. And you know, I'm kind of being a little bit angry about that, you know, why um that was happening to me, but um, yeah, that's that's what Stranger is about to me, and I just posted a, a video of it on YouTube on my YouTube channel for the NPR Tiny Desk Concert Contest, and um, a couple of my friends have shared it on their Facebook pages, and so it's gotten a lot of great response from fellow return volunteers who are like, "Yes, this is exactly what I'm feeling." I'm like, oh, "Okay, <laughs> I'm not crazy, woo, just a little." <laughs> well, let's listen to a bit of Stranger. Okay.
You've been listening to the Poshcore Podcast with Alan and Sakura. We just want to thank everyone again for listening to episode one. It's been really fun for us. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Poshcore and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. You can join our mailing list at poshcore.com and send questions or comments to podcast at poshcore.com. And if you like us and you want to support the podcast, be sure to pick up the podcast bundle on our website. And I forgot how we were going to end it. Thank you. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks.